0: Um, so let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity. Um, I thank you just for the the ability that you can allow us every uh, every week to worship your name um, just freely without without fear. And Lord, I pray that today I would be um, preaching your word and not mine. Um, that your uh, your word would go out um, and we can spread as far as possible. In your name I pray, amen. amen. So, have you ever gotten one of those emails or texts, whether it's from your boss or from a professor, and it says, we need to talk, dot, dot, dot? <laughs> you probably know what it's like to be filled with all-consuming anxiety, um, if you're a parent or if you are a spouse if you've ever gotten a, a phone call from one of your one of your kids or your spouse and you've you they start off with so don't worry but or don't panic but you probably know what it's like to go through every worst possible scenario within the fraction of a second. <sighs> So, those are certainly humorous examples, but what about something like financial anxieties? Have you ever had to worry about running from paycheck to paycheck, carefully calculating every single meal that you buy, worrying if you're gonna be able to afford the next meal? Have you ever had medical anxieties, jumping from doctor to doctor and then another one and another one over the span of months and you may not even get an answer. There are a lot of things in this world to be anxious about. And especially nowadays more than ever, it doesn't take more than a few seconds to turn on the news and see something to worry about, something to be scared about, something that you are told you need to be scared about. Anxiety is something that permeates this world. It's something that everybody experiences. It, it grabs a hold of your rationality, and it makes you spiral into irrationality. It, it turns you away from things that are reasonable. And there's some people that live every single day in anxiety. But why shouldn't they be? Why should they not be constantly fearful? Where is our comfort in such a cold, sinful, uncaring world? Be still and know that I am God, says Psalm 46.10. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with this quote. But what does it mean? And how do we apply this when we are just completely consumed and crippled with fearful anxiety we'll come to find out that this verse is not our study but it's our application but first we need to jump to Matthew 6 and if you would turn with me um, we'll be in Matthew 6 verse 25 Now, the context of this chapter is one that I'm sure most, if not all of you here, are familiar with. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so a chapter prior to this, it's recorded that a Jesus saw a great multitude of people, and he decided to <laughs> basically go away from them. And he climbed up a mountain, sat down, his disciples followed him, and he be- began to preach what's one of, if not the most famous sermon ever preached Um, over time as he began to preach um, the other people began to climb the mountain and follow up behind him Um, so this so there were many people that was hearing this it was both his disciples and likely unbelievers now let's start i would like to start at verse 25 of matthew 6 And it says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. This is Jesus speaking. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. So he's saying right off the bat, don't be anxious. He says it directly. There's no ambiguity here. And he lists our fundamental necessities, food, water, and clothing. And he says that we should not be worrying about any of them. But what he says um, at the end of this verse, it may be a little bit confusing where he says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So what, he, it, what he's saying, it can be, you can easily get confused once you start overthinking it. But what he's basically saying is that there is far more to life than just food and, um, and water and clothing. They are in our necessities, but there is more to life than that. So he gives some examples here. Um, let's see. Jesus gives examples through the Father's creation, starting verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So just as the birds are sustained by the grace of God, so too should we trust Him that He will do the same for us. Because He cares so much for the birds of the air, why would He not care about our to care to provide our needs? Just as the verse says, "Are you are you are we not of more value than the birds?" We tend to devalue ourselves and think that we are of lesser importance to God. um, Sometimes you can confuse humbling yourself with putting yourself down. And I say we generally as an individual sense of the word. Um, But God speaks against that in Luke chapter 12. This This chapter is the... Like Luke's account of um, the Sermon on the Mount, so basically a parallel, a parallel chapter covering this same story covers the same story beats and um, the Sermon in general. And in verses six and seven, he says, "Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not one of them is forgotten before God. Why even why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows." And again, it's, uh, he says here, you are of more value than them. Um, same wording, just different, different, uh, different account. So I did some surface, surface level research of the number of sparrows worldwide, um, the common house sparrow. As of roughly May of last year, the population seems to be about 1.6 billion Not million, but billion. And that's not a number that even I can visualize very well. I don't think anyone can quite fathom that. And that's just a recent thing. Apparently, as a side, apparently the population of sparrows is going down. So God is saying, Jesus is saying that if all of these, there's so many, all of these sparrows in the world, and they're not really worth very much. If one of is th- worth two pennies, but God still provides for them. He still does not forget about them. Why should we think that God's not going to care for our needs? Why he's not going to deliver us food, water, and clothing? Why, why do we sometimes worry that we're forgotten by God? Now verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Now this is like a solid, indisputable truth that I don't even think an unbeliever could disagree with. He's saying, who here can just add an hour to his life? No matter how much work you do, who can add an hour to your life? You can. The King James Version Says, which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? Basically, saying, who, uh, who, through effort, can add to your height? And I find that both of these translations complement each other because both of these are things that, whether by worrying or by doing, we cannot change. This is set in stone, and I say that in grief, wishing I could add a few inches to my height. But uh, (laughs) at this point, the point is, we agonize every hour over our physical attributes or the future of the world that we live in. It will not change the outcome. The outcome is in God's hands, not in ours. So after throwing down that hard truth, Jesus immediately continues, verse 28, saying, why are you anxious about your, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. These days we don't often think about how our clothing, or clothing is made, um, but in the days of Christ the wool of sheep would have to be shorn, spun, knit by hand. It was a very long and tedious process uh, and, and laborious process just to get one pair of clothing, one piece of clothing. And while that process may be different now, something that hasn't changed is how flowers grow and how flowers bloom. And they don't toil and they don't worry, completely relying on the provisions of God. So, verse 28, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field how they grow, they neither toil nor, sp- nor spin. 29, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon was well known for being the wealthiest king on earth, um, not just in the Bible, likely still um, probably the wealthiest person to ever exist. First Kings 10, 14 and 15 says, Now the weight of gold now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was six hundred and sixty-six talents of gold, beside that which came from the explorers and the business of the merchant of the merchants and from all kings of the west, from the governors of the land. I'll spare you the details on conversion rates and inflation rates, all that, but today, that would amount to about 959,654 dollars and 26 cents. This is how much King Solomon was making every year purely from the gold that he was receiving. This is uh, not including the other things that that was listed in verse 15, um, the the merchants, the explorers, the taxes, which according to the Bible, he heavily taxed his people. And it even says um, in the same chapter that the queen of Sheba, when she saw that all that he owned, there was no more breath in her. She was just completely taken aback by how much this king owned. So I think it's pretty safe to say that Solomon was pretty sharply dressed. But Jesus tells us that not even Solomon is dressed in such glory as the lilies of the field, as the flowers that you see and you appreciate a little bit, but you just sort of walk by them. But God says that not even Solomon was arrayed with the glory that these lilies have. So taking all that, all that into it, excuse me, getting ahead of myself. Step to verse 30. But if God, I, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not so much more clothe you, or will you of little faith? Okay, I'm not gonna do the statistics of how much grass there is on this earth. But I think you understand the scale of what Jesus is laying out here. He closed the grass the grass even though it will be thrown into the oven, or in other words, scorched by the burning sun. It grows and then it burns out or it withers away when winter time comes or fall time comes. So even something so temporary and fragile, so inanimate, God will provide. It's his creation. He will provide for it. So living in a first world country in the 21st century, I'm sure most people are not anxious about having clothing. And if anyone does, we're a church. We're here to support you on that. Come to the church about it. But your clothing, in the time of Christ, your clothing was, bought, was not bought. It was made by your own two hands or by the hands of a family member. And it was certainly something one could reasonably worry about having. So I'd like to briefly turn your attention to the phrase Jesus uses at the end of the verse, O you of little faith. We can see what little faith looks like in another passage of Scripture. So let's turn over to the book of John chapter 20 you can see what little faith looks like here. You can observe perhaps one of the most well-known cases of doubting in the Bible, that being the story of doubting Thomas. So this takes place after the resurrection of Christ and a few verses after Jesus reveals himself to the disciples, So starting verse 24. We read now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So when Jesus first revealed himself to the disciples, Thomas was not there. So the other t- disciples told him, "We have seen the Lord." But he said to them, "Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side where he was pierced with a spear, I will never believe. I will never believe." So Thomas is told that Christ has been resurrected, but he explicitly says, I will never believe unless he has the physical evidence before him as proof. Although it wasn't recorded, I imagine the frustration the disciples must have felt like Christ is alive. And after, after, Christ, after all that Christ had taught them, Throughout the time that he was with the disciples before his crucifixion, I can't imagine the frustration of the disciples hearing, like, I will not believe unless I have this physical evidence. But then Jesus arrives. In verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Okay, so. I could not help but just picture you're you're in a house with your friends and you know the doors are locked and you're just talking you're you're chatting and then you just hear behind you suddenly peace be with you I I can I, I imagine half the disciples ugh, like and God's just like peace be with you it, it for the Son of Man peace be with you seems like just such a in a name, greeting when you've just come back from the dead. Anyway, tw- verse 27 Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So Christ, being the all knowing God, was well aware that Thomas doubted his resurrection without having to be there to hear his doubting. Without wasting any of t- any time, he addresses those doubts by saying, "Put your uh, put your hands in the nail in the marks of the nails on my hands, in the in the hole in my side." Verse twenty eight. Thomas answered him, "My Lord and my God," recognizing him as Christ. Verse twenty nine. Jesus said to him, "Have you not believed because you have seen me?" Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So Jesus rebukes Thomas for his little faith. Being a disciple, he surely knew Christ as Lord, and he even displays as much in his resurrection, or excuse me, in his reaction to seeing Christ's body. The, the wounds of Calvary in Christ's body. But despises, despite his belief, he still doubted. Thomas knew, knew Christ, but doubted his resurrection. And do we not do the same in a similar manner? We accept Christ as our holy savior, but in little faith, we doubt his provisions. When we agonize over our fundamental needs, we're doubting no less than Thomas. Christ promised his resurrection, and in a little faith, Thomas doubted. Christ promised provision, and in our little faith, we doubted. And we still doubt. So let's continue back, back to uh, Matthew 6. Verse 31, Christ, uh, Christ says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, "What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear?" For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you do not need them all. That you do need them all. So, to the um, the Gentiles here, this—this what Jesus is saying—it can basically be translated to unbelievers. Um, It's just a historical language context. The unsaved worry about food and about drink and about clothing because they do not have the promise of God's provision, but we do. And to the unbeliever, life is about the here and now. Assure, the, assure that your needs are, needs are met and then chase after your wants. Eat, drink, and be merry for today. We, tomorrow we die. Live life to the fullest. The unbeliever does not have the hope of eternity. For to them, life is not more than food or than clothing. So we should not worry about our needs, lest we be like those of little faith. So back to verse 31, um, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So great, all we need to do is be saved. God will provide me with my needs. Well, no. Because look at verse 33 again. This is not a blank check. We're told that there's a requirement to receiving these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't just sit on your hands expecting God will provide for you. Seek him. Seeking is an active pursuit. It's not just an I'll keep an eye out for it. It's chasing after something in search of it. Chase after God's truth. Pursue it. Don't let it elude you lest the sin of this earth creep its way into your life like a cancerous disease. Because it will if you're not constantly seeking Christ. Christ when you've put your full trust into the most high, when you've given your life to the one who created you, then all of these things will be added to you. Only then. Jesus is telling us to seek out the character of God. When you put your focus into pursuing the knowledge of God's character, who he is, you'll realize more and more that he is a God worth placing your trust in. We seek him through his word and we seek him through prayer, continually learning more and more about who he is. And when you truly understand who he is, you will understand he is in total control. Don't be misled, though. What Jesus is promising it's not provision for ev- your every desire. Remember, this is not a blank check. When he says all these things will be added to you, he's speaking of our needs, not our wants. These, nee- these needs that he lists, th- food, water, and clothing, these are our absolute needs. We don't need a house. We don't need shelter. From, a, from a, a barest minimum sense, we do not need these things. But God is not promising to provide you even shelter, but he will provide you your needs as long as you put your full trust in him. So you say, show me this God I should be seeking. So I will. I'll show you. Psalm one forty five seventeen. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Is this not a God worth putting your trust in? So Christ closes this message saying, therefore, or taking all of this into account, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I once had a friend who would be very anxious about things in her life, she was unsaved. And there were times where she would tell me about how she was worried about about school tomorrow or a doctor's appointment. She she was stressed out about a lot of things in her life. My advice to her at the time was don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow isn't here yet. Today is what you have to face. Worry about today. Take care of that. And when tomorrow is today, then you take care of that. Basically, tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now that's good advice at all, but it's something missing, something fundamental. The advice is practical, but ultimately hollow. Why is that? It's because we as believers have a different reason to not be anxious. For us, it's simply not tomorrow isn't here yet, For us, it's tomorrow is covered by God. We're in his hands. All we need to do is seek the kingdom of God. Or in other words, put our full faith in him every single day. And he will feed us like he does the birds of the air. He'll clothe us like the grass of the field. And as other scripture has promised, he will provide us an eternal home. So if you remember the quote from Psalms I had mentioned at the beginning of this message, be still and know that I am God. I had said that this is not the message but our application. So what do I mean by that? To know that he is God is to understand his total sovereignty. It's to uh, recognize that he is in total control of your life. Fundamentally, fear comes from a lack of control. If you're not in 100% control of something, there is uncertainty and something can go wrong. But if you're in 100% control of it, there's no need to be worried. But we will never be in control. It's basically it's basic psychology, it's not anything profound. We're not in control and so we have fear. But we'll ne- despite the fact that we'll never be in control, isn't it wonderful that a perfect and infallible God is the one who is in total control? Take comfort in the fact that you are not in control because there's a God who is and he will provide for you if only you seek first the kingdom of God. So when we know that he is God or have faith in his sovereignty or understand his total control, we're still, we are still, we're not anxious. The lack of control no longer shakes us. When you're living in poverty and, when, and um, you're worried about whether you can afford your next meal, be still and know that he is God. When you wear, When war is breaking out across the world and you're terrified that it's going to reach here, be still and know that he is God. If persecution comes for us, We're taken from our homes. And we are thrown into prison. Be still and know that he is God. I'm going to get a little personal. Um, I've lived the majority of my life with a laundry list of medical issues. Some of them include anxiety disorders. I spent half of my life more than half of my life going from doctor to doctor to doctor, going from painful test to painful test and still being undiagnosed with uncertainty always on my heart. I've had to go through the emotional turmoil of accepting that there is no cure for this, that I'm gonna have to live the rest of my life with the struggles every single day I know what it's like to worry about tomorrow. If I could make it through college or sustain a job or raise a family. I know what it's like to silently struggle and then burst into tears in front of my own parents saying I just can't do it. I know what anxiety is. I've had to learn the hard way how to be still and know that he is God. So trust me when I say that I'm not preaching this message just because it'll makes it it'll give you a warm and fuzzy feeling inside. I'm preaching this because there's a world of horrors out there, but there's a God who's so much greater than it all. I'm not afraid of tomorrow because I know my perfect God is in control, and I want you all to know that too. So when the weight of this sinful world is bearing down on us, when fear, sin, and the devil, that dark cloud of anxiety is just dragging you down. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, because God will provide. Be still and know that he is God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a world of fear. This is a world of sin and it's so easy to be consumed by it. Everywhere that we turn, we see people who are afraid. So let us use your word to not only strengthen our own lives, to not be anxious, to be still, to know that you are God, but let us use your word to let others know that you are God. Help us to go every single day to wake up, to take up our cross, and say, I will not fear, because you are in control, because you are my God. Let us look only, not with fear into the future, but only with anticipation to the eternity that awaits us. In your heavenly name I pray, amen.